6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, sorry, Wednesday, December 20th, 2023. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, Robert McClure. In tonight's news, with respiratory viruses on the rise, some area hospitals are bringing back mask requirements. Advocates are looking for ways to help all UW System students feel welcome on campus after the board voted to limit DEI programming. The state Supreme Court is hearing a case that could change Wisconsin's gig economy. And in the second half, a local gallery is looking to bridge the gap between fine and craft art. The most comprehensive weather report hits the airwaves, and December of 1960 was a busy month for Madison. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. President Biden campaigned in Milwaukee today and focused his message on the administration's record in support of black businesses and workers. He visited a black-owned plumbing company that is replacing lead-lined water lines with federal funds. He also repeated that his administration cut the number of black children in poverty in half and reminded the large crowd that all of the Republican members of Congress voted against continuing the program. Biden took aim at Trump's repeated statement that immigrants are poisoning the blood of the nation. He said that the economy is stronger when we are tapping into the full range of talents in the nation. Biden got 5,000 fewer votes in Milwaukee than Hillary Clinton received in 2016, with much of the decline in majority black wards. Polls indicate that his support among black voters has continued to decline. It's expected that Biden will make repeated visits to the state over the next year. An initiative to place first-year law students who are persons of color in sought-after clerkships is the latest target of conservatives' ongoing war against affirmative action. The Associated Press reports that the right-wing law firm Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty has filed a suit against the State Bar of Wisconsin for violating the right of equal protection of white students, (coughs) pardon me, white students because they are not considered for placement in the program. The lawsuit follows the recent decision of the U.S. Supreme Court that found consideration of race and ethnicity in the admissions program of colleges unlawful. Past participants have received internships in state agencies, corporations, and leading law firms. The State Bar is a mandatory membership organization for Wisconsin attorneys with 25,000 members. Sheboygan DA Joel Ermanski has officially appealed a Dane County judge's ruling on Wisconsin's 19th century abortion law. That decision from Dane County Judge Diane Schlipper found that the 1849 law prohibiting abortions doesn't apply when consent of the mother is given. The appeal of the Republican DA also contends that Attorney General Call did not have standing to bring the case to court. Call told the Wisconsin State Journal that he's confident the decision will withstand further appeals. Dane County Judge Schlipper's decision immediately reinstated abortion services in Madison and Milwaukee. Service in Sheboygan is expected to launch late next week. The appeal is likely to send the case to the state Supreme Court, and how the top court will rule could be a matter of timing as the court holds a narrow liberal majority. Today, the Department of Labor reported that the U.S. unemployment rate fell to a record low of 3.7%. That's down two-tenths from the previous month. This is the result of another record. Three-quarters of a million people entered the workforce, signaling the continuation of a tight labor market. Wisconsin and Dane County are doing even better than that, with unemployment rates below the national average at 3% and 2.4% respectively. Unemployment has generally been low in Wisconsin since 2020, except for during the height of the coronavirus pandemic from March to October of 2021. Overall, the state has a strong employment picture with only a few counties, including Milwaukee, having jobless rates of 4% or above. Yesterday, Governor Evers' four new candidates to the Natural Resources Board were grilled by a Republican Senate committee before a vote on whether to confirm their appointment. The governor's previous four candidates were rejected by the committee. 
The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that nominees were asked their positions on a range of issues, including the hunting of sandhill cranes, wolves and deer, mining, the embattled Knowles-Nelson stewardship program, and the powers of the board. The four nominees include the former director of the River Alliance, the land management director of the Menominee Indian Tribe, a former Democratic state senator, and a hydrologist who led the state's environmental loan program. The Senate committee members were particularly interested in the nominee's view of the proposed Enbridge line, who should pay for cleanup of PFAS-polluted sites and hunting quotas and seasons. One nominee was questioned about a tweet he posted last year that described Republicans as, quote, terrorists and traitors, end quote. He said he didn't remember writing it, but that he would look into the context. A legislative committee today heard public testimony on a bipartisan bill that would consider some gig delivery workers to be independent contractors. Under the bill, drivers for Lyft, Uber, DoorDash, Instacart, and other apps wouldn't be considered employees of those companies, and they wouldn't be eligible to apply for benefits such as workers' compensation and unemployment assistance. Also under the bill, some gig workers could create what's being referred to as a portable benefit account to use for things like health insurance or retirement, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. The bill, Assembly Bill 477, has a majority of Republican sponsors with a few Democratic lawmakers backing it, too. Tech companies like Uber, DoorDash, Instacart, and Juul are lobbying to get the bill passed. So is Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, the state's largest business interest. Two groups are registered against the bill, the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin AFL-CIO. A corollary bill making its way through the state Senate received a public hearing last month. And if you're interested to know more about what independent contractor status means for workers and for the state, we'll be diving into the topic in greater depth in a few moments. The average wait time for nurses to get their licenses approved has declined by more than half this year. According to a report by the Legislative Audit Bureau, applicants for a nursing license waited an average of four months for approval, and it is now two months. The wait time for license approval for trades declined from 38 days to 17 days. The Department of Safety and Professional Services has come under criticism from legislators for many years for the long waiting times. The department noted its very low staffing levels, which did not increase until this year. The Audit Bureau attributes the change to the use of an online application system. The report states that much of the wait times are due to either or both the agency and applicant waiting for each other to send or approve documents. And those were the headlines. And now on to the rest of the day's top news. According to the Madison-Dane County Health Department, the rate of respiratory illnesses is high in Dane County. Emergency room visits due to COVID-19, flu, and RSV have all been on the rise since October. And with family gatherings around the corner, those rates could continue to rise. And that's part of the reason why some area hospitals have brought back masking rules. Our producer, Faye Parks, has the story. UW Health and Unity Point Health Meritor are bringing masking requirements back to their hospitals and clinics. The new rules for staff, patients, and visitors went into effect yesterday. That's as COVID-related hospitalizations have doubled since mid-October, according to Public Health Madison, Dane County. Caitlin Harms, the Infection Prevention Program Manager at Meritor, says they're seeing a rise in the most common respiratory viruses. 14% of their flu tests are positive, 12% of their RSV tests are positive, and 20% of their COVID-19 tests are positive. While a seasonal trend for COVID-19 is a bit new, it is not new for influenza and RSV. So we anticipate this will be an annual occurrence. At Meritor, all patients, visitors, and medical professionals must wear a mask whenever they're in close quarters. So to help clarify, that is not a mask required everywhere in all of our buildings. It is specific to that one-on-one or direct patient care. So when you're in an exam room or when you're in a patient care room or a waiting room. Masks won't be required in other areas of the building, places like cafeterias, elevators, or offices. 
Harms says the primary goal is to keep staff and patients safe, particularly vulnerable patients like infants or elderly folks who are more likely to require hospitalization if they're infected. Harms says they expect some resistance to the requirement, just as they did during the pandemic. And that's why, as healthcare workers, we are also prepared to be good educators. She says their staff has the training to listen to folks' concerns, and they have access to different mask sizes. If needed, staff can also direct visitors to areas where masks are not required. And Harms has some advice on how to stay healthy during the holiday season, when many are traveling and socializing in large groups. Luckily, the best things to keep ourselves and our family safe during the season are the basics. Good hand washing, cover your coughs. If you do become ill, separate yourself from your loved ones as much as possible. Seek out testing if available to you. Stay up to date on your vaccinations and take good care of yourself. You know, stress management, hydration, all that good stuff leads to a strong immune system. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that other hospitals aren't following suit. St. Mary's Hospital is not changing its masking guidelines, but is monitoring the situation. Wastewater surveillance can help predict future rates of COVID in the community and has the benefit of not relying solely on reported cases. According to state health officials, concentration of COVID-19 in wastewater is at very high levels in Madison and much of Wisconsin, indicating an upward trajectory in infections. Last week's seven-day average of COVID in wastewater exceeded the average from this time last year and was two-thirds the wastewater rate in mid-December 2021. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Wisconsin's public colleges and universities have been embroiled in a debate over demands from the legislature to limit diversity efforts in exchange for more state funding. With a decision now made, advocates for students of color are calling for more involvement in student government associations to help their peers feel welcome. Wisconsin News Connection's Mike Mowen has the story. Campuses within Wisconsin's public university system now face hard limits on diversity and inclusion efforts following a controversial budget agreement tied to the legislature. Advocates for black and brown students hope it inspires activism. Last week, the Board of Regents approved a deal pushed by Republican lawmakers to freeze DEI hiring so that schools could receive state funding for staff raises and campus construction projects. Jesse Segarra of the Wisconsin-based group Leaders Igniting Transformation sees the outcome as a dangerous precedent. She hopes student groups will be motivated to push back. Student government associations in Wisconsin hold a great power and privilege to speak on behalf of the students especially with working with chancellors and administrators and the dean of students. While policies may vary between campuses, Sagara says she's encouraging these associations to use their resources to support diversity efforts and encouraging students to attend meetings. Republican legislative leaders contend DEI programs are divisive. Their arguments come amid growing cultural debates at colleges and universities across the U.S. Sagara says diversity, equity, and inclusion programs were a tremendous help when she attended college in Wisconsin. She feels they can set students who feel they don't have a voice on a better path. All students benefit, and especially students who come from different backgrounds, uh, whether they come from big cities, small cities, everyone benefits from these resources. And researchers with Texas A&M University say their look into a specific DEI plan revealed an increase in enrollment for Latino students, among other positive benefits. However, the study also found that despite these efforts, students felt that people on campus still tended to stay within their own identity groups. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Support for this reporting was provided by Lumina Foundation. Amazon could be on the hook for about $200,000. That is, if the state Supreme Court determines that their delivery partners, as they're termed, are employees rather than contractors. Wisconsin's Department of Workforce Development contends that Amazon should have should have to pay into the state's unemployment insurance fund to cover these delivery partners, something they have not been doing. Amazon argues that this specific group of drivers are self-employed and therefore the company is not responsible for their payments. Earlier today, our producer Faye Park spoke to Victor Forberger, a Wisconsin-based labor and employment attorney, to find out more. Thank you for joining me, Victor. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Can you give us a brief explainer of this case? The basic issue is 
whether the people who I guess are these flex drivers, not the regular drivers, but people who provide their own vehicle and then deliver packages for Amazon qualify as employees or as independent contractors. And this is a tax case, not a benefits case. So what's happened is DWD found out that there's all these flex drivers who are working for Amazon and said, hey, you, know, you need to pay unemployment taxes because these are your employees. Amazon is resisting that and saying that it doesn't want to pay those unemployment taxes. This case, like many other cases involving a lot of these so-called new wave tech companies like Uber and Lyft, the claim with these companies is that they're an app or a tech company and not an actual delivery company or taxi service or people mover, that it's these individuals are hence their own employer and employee, and they're an independent contractor as a result. The problem with this is, you know, deliveries are still being made. You know, in the case of Uber and Lyft, they're still taxing people around. So why aren't they also then the employer of all these people? And especially since the app that these people have to use in order to do their job is controlling all the steps they have to do or undertake in order to accomplish that job. And Amazon's position here is they're trying to say, well, we're just providing an app and these people have all this flexibility and they can decide when they want to do deliveries and when they don't want to do deliveries. And so we're just providing, you know, an opportunity for these people to provide their own labor, but they're doing it all for themselves. And that's their claim in this case. It's been rejected all across the board, except for one kind of very weird circuit court judge who completely sided with Amazon on everything. But everyone else has kind of said, no, no, wait, there really are employees. Amazon is making the case now in the state Supreme Court to say, no, 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 because of all this variability in how people assess these flex drivers, this really is a mess. And you state Supreme Court judges need to step in and clarify what these factors are. And by the way, they really are independent contractors. They're not employees. And to make them employees would stifle this um, gig economy that's so wonderful for all these employees. The opposite case for the employees is, wait a second, when we lose our job, we'd like to be able to get unemployment benefits. Unemployment benefits are a central stimulus to the economy. They provide this economic engine when there are downturns. And so by depriving us of, of those unemployment benefits, you are hurting everyone else in the state who has to depend on consumer spending. In addition, we really aren't so much you know, independent contractors because we have to function through this app and this app tracks and controls everything we do. You know, Just because you've set up an app that people can download on their phone and use doesn't necessarily mean we're independent and freelancers who can determine everything about our job. So it's my understanding that the Department of Workforce Development actually has a list of criteria to distinguish between employees and independent contractors. Can you walk me through that? It's a very complicated test. And I often tell people who contact me is there's an IRS guidelines for who's an independent contractor, who's an employee. And then there's various guidelines in labor law and employment discrimination law. And then there's the criteria for unemployment law. The unemployment law criteria is incredibly difficult to meet. You will almost always be presumed an employee. And one of the things that came up at this hearing is, well, you're performing services. Well, to be an employee for unemployment purposes, all you have to be is, first of all, are you performing services for pay for someone? That means you're an employee. And then in order to not be an employee or to be an independent contractor, you have to then establish one is that you have direction and control of what you do, independent of your so-called employer. And if that factor is met, then you also then have to meet six of nine additional factors that are laid out in the law. And it is incredibly difficult to meet those factors. One of them is, and as one of the issues in the case, is you have to have multiple clientele. You know, so, for example, if you hire a plumbing company, if you're the plumbing company's only customer, they may not be an independent business. That's probably, you know, your Uncle Joe who is trying to fix your plumbing leak. But if you hire, you know, Acme Plumbing Company that's got 50 zillion clients, well, yeah, they're an independent business. And so the issue is, so if I'm a flex driver, am I doing this driving for a bunch of other people or am I just really doing it for Amazon? Well, this is one of the factors that came up in this case is Amazon didn't present any evidence about any actual drivers. They didn't have anyone testify at this hearing who actually was a driver. They just had managers testify about what they saw the drivers do and what they think the drivers were doing, but not any actual drivers. And so there's a big dearth of evidence that Amazon is trying to claim here is not their fault. 
What are the consequences exactly for these delivery partners, as they're called, if they're ruled to be contractors and not employees? What would the impacts be? This is really just for Amazon. So Wisconsin has this in their unemployment law. Unemployment tax questions are decided completely separately from benefit eligibility questions. So I can you know, apply for benefits and I may qualify for those benefits, but whether my employer is paying any taxes based on my wages that I receive from that employer is a completely separate question. All the flex drivers can probably apply for unemployment benefits and probably qualify for unemployment benefits based on separations, you know, if they have a qualifying separation. But whether Amazon pays taxes or not is a separate issue. And that's what this case is about, is whether Amazon pays taxes. And so who would foot the bill? Would it be the contractors themselves who are paying higher taxes or would that burden fall on the state? So it's illegal for any employer or anyone to charge someone for unemployment tax liability. And that's a tax that employers have to pay based on the wages they pay their employees. So this is essentially a tax that Amazon has to pay for all these thousand drivers it had for several years, which I think is amounts to like $200,000 or $300,000. If Amazon doesn't pay this, then that means other employers have to pay this through what's called a balancing account. So the employees can still qualify for employment benefits, these flex drivers for Amazon, but there'd be no employer who's paying the taxes that support those benefits. So then the money would come out of a balancing account, which is a general fund that all the other employers pay into. A lot of employers in Wisconsin are traditional employers. And so they see these new tech companies as kind of like trying to um, fudge the game and get out of paying this unemployment tax liability. And traditional employers then have to pick up the tab. And the other problem, obvious problem here is that if people can't get unemployment benefits, that then hurts consumer spending. because That means less money in people's pockets when they're out of work and so they can't spend that money. It's not so much an issue right now because the unemployment rate is so low. It's very easy for people to find new jobs. And all the studies have indicated right now that that's what's happening. It's basically people quit a job and when you start another job, that probably pays them better wages than they were previously getting. So unemployment claims are way down in the state. But you need to have employers paying into the system, especially in good economic times, so you build up the trust fund so that when we have another recession down the road, there's money available to help pay people the unemployment benefits when they are out of work and they can't find new jobs. Amazon is a multi-billion dollar company. Why fight so hard against a $200,000 bill? Amazon makes its money off of that margin. So they're a billion dollar company because they successfully, you know, make a lot of a very small profit off of a lot of items that are sold. So it's quantity and scale that really works for Amazon. They need to avoid that $200,000 to increase their profit margin. In the grand scheme of things, no, this isn't a lot, but they're fighting this in probably in all 50 states. This contest has been waged in a bunch of different states. There's a bunch of Uber and Lyft cases that are out there, which courts now have kind of ruled that, you know, Uber and Lyft are employers, traditional employers, and their drivers qualify as employees, not independent contractors, and so they owe unemployment taxes. In other states, say Uber drivers are ruled to be employees instead of contractors, would that then apply to every other gig business in that state? Yeah, and Uber and Lyft drivers have been found to be employees. That was a case that I started with the Labor Industry Review Commission. And this Amazon case has made it all made it all the Supreme Court is just another one of these cases, that these companies are hiring high-priced legal talent to fight this case because they're looking at the long-term tax, you know, unemployment taxes they have to pay and they want to avoid those payments. I think that covers all of my questions, but is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? There are a bunch of bills in our state legislature right now to attempt to create exemptions from unemployment statutorily called network couriers or network transportation drivers. One of these is SB 559, and there's probably an AB counterpart as well. And these are moving very fast through our legislature. And I suspect that there are people, you know, lobbyists buying Amazon and other companies that are pushing for these kind of changes. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. On this week's Framing Culture, feature contributor Jose Carlos Teixeira 
uh, visited Abel Contemporary Gallery in Stoughton, Wisconsin. While there, he spoke to the owner, Teresa Abel. They'll discuss her work as a curator, bridging the gap between fine and craft art, and her work as an artist, bridging the gap between art history and contemporary practice. Framing Culture I am now in Stoughton at the Abel Contemporary Gallery. Hello, good morning. Hi, Jose. I'm Teresa Abel, and thanks for coming. This contemporary gallery, it's a large, beautiful building in which Theresa has a commercial space and also a project room upstairs with many other activities. Yes, the gallery is housed in a warehouse that was built in the late 1800s. It was a tobacco warehouse. The gallery takes up 8,000 square feet in this building. We host three concurrent exhibits that change about every seven or eight weeks. We always host a featured artist, a group show, and then in our project space, which is called Gallery Number 5, we invite an artist to do something that might be outside of what we normally think of in a commercial gallery. It might be an installation, a video piece, it could be performance, anything. It's just an opportunity for more evocative works. As we walk around the space, I can notice that you have a lot of artwork displayed from sculpture to drawing, painting to ceramics to jewelry. So you actually represent many, many artists across the country. We represent just under 100 artists from across the United States in all media. My husband is a woodworker and a metalsmith, Tim O'Neill. And before we bought the gallery and took over 20 years ago, he was a working full-time studio artist in fine craft and exhibiting across the United States. I'm a painter and it was always important for us to show all of what we normally consider fine art and fine craft together because we think they're both incredibly important. As we know, there is a certain segment of the high echelons of the art world that try to dissociate craft from the more sophisticated theoretical conceptual art. So what do you have to say about that and your mission here? There is. There, there's sometimes there's a hierarchy and sometimes we'll joke even within what is quote unquote fine art. You know, I spent a lot of time in college with painters, spending all of this time with Tim traveling across the United States and looking at what people were doing and talking with them. I realized that the creative process was the same, the intellectual rigor, the dedication to their craft. And it was just this realization that it was such a similar way of working. There was no reason to segment those things. I always go back at least 100 years ago when Bauhaus was just a powerhouse for decades about these beautiful marriage or actually in the first place these things were never disconnected the craft and also the theoretical sort of umbrella approach that's interesting because just this past summer Tim and I were in Germany and we went to Dessau and we had a whole two days where we just absorbed all of the Bauhaus that we could <laughs> Yeah, that, that is very similar to our philosophy here. For instance, ceramics is an area that we're quite well known for, and we represent artists from across the United States. They're doing functional work. They're doing sculptural work. I think it's an incredibly exciting area right now. And as a collector, I feel like the prices still haven't gotten crazy. So you could buy potentially a beautiful piece from an extremely well-known, highly skilled ceramicist and actually get in there and buy it and own it and live with it. And it's not going to break the bank. As we walk around, I can see really gorgeous, gorgeous pieces of ceramics here. Theresa, tell me how is having a gallery in Stoughton, it's not Madison Central, right? And how has the public and the potential clients have been reacting or coming here? Before we were in Stoughton, we were located in Paoli, Wisconsin, just southwest of Madison. At that time, it was called the Wisconsin Artisan Gallery, and it was different. The work that she was showing was mostly focused on local work and mostly fine craft. So there was an established audience of people who were coming. So right away, I realized that people who were really actively interested in the arts would travel. So I guess I was confident that moving here and being in Stoughton would be fine because it was already working for us. And I knew that people would be willing to drive and we give you an experience to come here because it's in this beautiful building. There's so much that you can see when you're here and it makes it easier for people to come here from Milwaukee and the Chicago area and they do. That's wonderful to hear. And I can assure you to all of you at home or driving your car that it's really a beautiful space and it's really worth coming. 
So Theresa, can we walk up a little bit? Upstairs, you said that you have the project space called Gallery 5, right? So we are walking towards that. Yes. And in our original space in Paoli, that was an old creamery. And there was a walk-in cooler that before we had bought the gallery was just a storage space. And my husband decided to clear it out and use it for his MFA show. And other artists were so impressed by the space that people kept asking to have shows in there. And so it dawned on us that we could use this for those kinds of installations. When we moved, we loved that part of our programming. It's kind of like giving back to artists and giving back to the community. So we built this space, and it's called Gallery Number no. 5, because this building was the number no. 5 tobacco warehouse in Stoughton. Currently, Able Contemporary is having Richard Jones with an exhibition called Storm Windows. And I'm right now walking inside and around this beautiful piece. So I think that for the gallery, it's important to have not only more commercial work, but also work that we could be deeming as more experimental too. Yes. And what I like about it is that people may come here for either reason. Like some people may come here and they think, I just love the shows in your project space. I've heard that from people. It's almost like a little museum space or an art center within the gallery. But then they're also exposed to a lot of other things. Maybe they've never really thought of functional ceramics as fine art. So you can expand your horizons. And the opposite is true as well. So basically, you are actively making the bridge between these potential audiences and publics. We might be tricking you into seeing things that you wouldn't normally look at, yeah. So now it's time. I'm going downstairs right now with you, Theresa, to talk about a very special thing. So you just opened your two-person show with your close friend and collaborator, Kelly Hopman, and I was quite impressed with the aesthetical power, the beauty, the intriguing nature of your paintings and the direct collaborations that you have done with Kelly. Can you talk to us about it as we walk around? I've always been a painter, and my work isn't always the feature of the gallery. This is very unusual. I really try to put my other artists first, but I have been working on a body of work for about five years. Well, there's one very large piece that is a commission that's a focus of the show that I've been working on and off for five years. Kelly Hopman is a Madison artist who does beautiful figurative work that's almost a little surreal or some might refer to as magical realism. And she and I have known each other for over 30 years and we've collaborated before and it's always just really wonderful to work with her. We've had an ongoing dialogue about our work all of those years and every now and then we share paintings and create works together that we really don't talk about. We just make them. So the name of your exhibition together is Stones and Stoics. For example, right now in front of a piece that you both did collaboratively. And so what I realized looking at your own individual paintings is that although different, you guys share almost a similar aesthetic grammar. And when you come together to realize a piece, I mean, it just feels that you are one entity. Yeah, and other people have noted that. Part of it is because we've been such very, very close friends all these years, we kind of grew up painting together. When we first met, we were interested in the same kinds of work historically, coming from different perspectives. I was raised in a strict Catholic upbringing, so early Renaissance work that I'm interested in may have had a different meaning to me. Kelly was raised by atheists, so, so everything she knows about religion comes from art history. We talked a lot about our philosophies of painting and art, and I think because we evolved together, it makes it so much easier for us to work and why there's a similarity in the way perhaps we apply paint. I'm very close to a panel of five pieces together called The Stone Path. Theresa, can you elaborate for us how do you approach your art, both on a formal stylistic way, but also conceptually, as your paintings are so evocative of this medieval Renaissance look and spirit? I have to say, initially, as an art student, I was not at all interested in this work from this period. But when I did a study abroad semester in Florence, the work that really resonated with me was late medieval work and early Renaissance work and mannerism. And I learned how to do gilding there and a lot of grinding of pigments and technical things. I don't grind my own pigments now or anything like that, but I have incorporated gilding and I do a lot of silver point drawing, which is drawing with silver wire. I reference those styles 
skills to tell stories that I'm interested in about my life and about the effect that I think religion has on our society. And I've been doing that for decades. This particular piece is very specifically a narrative that runs through all five panels that is about a girl who was raised in a strict Catholic upbringing, who leaves the church, becomes an artist, realizes that there are things about art that are like religion. The artists that we consider sort of the top of their field are designing museums and putting the work in there. And we treat the work like they're sacred. We kind of whisper in the museum. We have guards that are there and loads of people to restore the work and make sure that they're kept safe and no one touches them. And there's a reverence to that. And when it dawned on me, I thought, oh, I've just traded one religion for another. (laughs) I find also so insightful and so refreshing to see a contemporary artist like yourself to also make that bridge. Not only you make a bridge between high art and craft here at your gallery, but you also make in your own personal trajectory as an artist, you are also making the bridge between art history and contemporary practice. So I think on that you are very successful, I would say. Theresa, thank you so much for welcoming us here and I wish you the best. Thank you, Jose. And the shows that are in the gallery right now, the show that I have with Kelly, there's a a cup show of great ceramicists from across the United States and the Richard Jones show, which I love. Those shows are up through December 31st. So we hope people can join us. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, despite my speculation that we might see the entire month of December ending up above normal in terms of temperatures, uh, or perhaps it was because I speculated about it out loud, our streak of abnormal warmth did come to an end yesterday. We wound up two degrees below normal. Uh, And that was mostly on the strength of the overnight drop-off in temperatures that we saw Monday night into Tuesday morning when calm winds and clear skies allowed the Arctic air mass that was briefly over us to plummet to 11 degrees. Actually, the daytime high of 32 yesterday was a bit above normal. But anyway, uh, that's it for the cold weather, at least for a good while, uh, possibly again till the end of the month. The upcoming week may indeed see some exceptionally warm temperatures, pushing on uh, records, perhaps, for overnight lows, uh, probably those, and uh, possibly for the daytime highs as well as we get out uh, into this weekend and early next week. If you have a look at one of the water vapor images of North America that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage this evening, either the wider view that includes the Pacific Ocean or the narrower view just with the continent, you'll get some idea of what uh, both the shorter and longer term hold in store for us. The wider scale view, very similar configuration to the way it looked last week at this time, shows a polar jet stream northeast bound from the central Pacific up towards northern British Columbia and central Nunavut, effectively ejecting continental polar air out of much of Canada. The subtropical branch, meanwhile, continues to snake across uh, central Mexico and far the far southern U.S. from west to east. Though a wave trough currently off of uh, Baja, California, uh, is accommodating a closed low-pressure circulation just to its north, kind of spinning in place off of southern California. The energy in that isolated pocket of cold air is going to eject northeastward towards the upper Great Lakes in uh, a couple or three waves at least over the coming days. With, a, uh, with first a weak impulse heading this way uh, later tomorrow and Friday before we see a kind of a break in the action Saturday and Sunday, and that'll be followed by a more complete ejection of that circulation Monday and Tuesday. Despite the fact that this gyre, uh, to look at it, plainly has a lot of energy, uh, it will have weakened by early next week, and it's also going to be in a fairly non-conducive environment for deepening once it starts to approach us, given a lack of uh, cold air anywhere nearby and the concomitant uh, stronger upper winds that that might engender. So the overall effect of this system is uh, going to be mostly to warm and wet us over a kind of long period of time. Uh, that'll start tomorrow with just passing high and mid-level clouds as warmth and moisture be- starts to work uh, northward up the plains to our west. And then we'll see a gradual moistening of the lower part of the air column down in the lowest miles. We go overnight tomorrow and through Friday with dropping ceilings. There'll be a lingering amount of dry air aloft through most of tomorrow, which will keep us dry, and the lift will be fairly minimal 
uh, as we go through Friday. So uh, thickening cloud cover and occasional just drizzle or light rain will be the primary effect of this first wave as we go into the weekend from here. The second round then from Sunday through Tuesday is going to be a little harder to uh, parse with the remaining energy lifting out probably in a couple or three more waves at that time, all of which will be passing west of us, keeping us warm, at least before the final circulation spins through the area, uh, perhaps to our south on Tuesday. The modeling is rife with differences still going through next week. And it's a little unclear just how much colder air may actually be able to work in behind this system as it exits Wednesday and Thursday. But the expect expectation at this point is that the storm may either cut off partially in the warm air that it brings northward or else uh, move rather slowly for a period before finally ejecting in the late week period. But the modeling is fairly clear that the circulation will rotate unseasonably warm and unseasonably moist air into the area, so warm overnight lows in particular are expected, possibly with some pretty decent rains giving just the general amount of atmospheric moisture available and the rather slow forward progress of the overall system will remain generally warmer than normal then after the system exits uh, out uh, through probably the end of the month with the global forecast systems model still looking to cool us more substantially after the first of the year we'll see if that prediction still holds in place but anyway, back to this evening, the skies will continue to uh, see an increase in high and mid-level clouds, uh, gradually thickening more as we get uh, past midnight and on towards dawn especially. Temperatures will drop to around 30 or so over the coming few hours, perhaps rising down a degree or two past midnight as the clouds thicken. Winds will be easterly uh, 4 to 8 miles per hour. Tomorrow, passing high and mid-level clouds will be joined by increasing amounts of lower clouds, especially later in the day. And those may thicken down to about a thousand feet or less as we go uh, overnight. Uh, temperatures will reach the upper 30s on southeasterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour, veering more southerly as we go overnight into Friday. And light rain or drizzle may also become more widespread as we head towards dawn. And Friday will be uh, dark and dreary and occasionally wet, I'm afraid, with uh, low ceilings and uh, passing sprinkles on southerly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. We may get a round of more focused rain as we get either later in the day or in the overnight period, with another tenth or two perhaps coming down. Temperatures in the low 40s Friday are going to hold pretty much steady as we go into the overnight into Saturday. And Saturday you'll see uh, showers scattering east, though I doubt we'll see much in the way of, of breaking cloud deck, perhaps a little lifting that day. Temperatures will reach the mid to upper 40s on continued southerly winds at 48 miles per hour, then hold steady again overnight. So that may set us up for lower mid-50s on Sunday. The record high that day is 60. And rains are likely to start up again by late day Sunday or in the overnight. And depending upon how much uh, the on and off rains hold temperatures down, we may see mid-50s again on Monday. I believe the record for that day is 56. Overnight lows, though, are uh, likely to be record-setting Sunday and or Monday in the upper 40s somewhere. At the moment, the temperature down here at the station on Bedford Street is 35 degrees. The dew point temperature is 22. Winds are out of the northeast at 6 miles per hour. Uh, waxing first quarter moon visible up above the station through just a few passing cirrus. And the barometer is rising at 30.33 inches of mercury. We go now to December 1960 when residents in the Triangle Urban Renewal Area got bad news. The city council did a solid for Martin Luther King, and a unique shopping center moved forward. Stu Levitan has the headlines and more from 63 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, December 1960. The thousand residents of the Greenbush neighborhood who will be displaced by the Triangle Urban Renewal Project in a few years will be on their own to find new housing, says the Madison Redevelopment Authority. All year, the Madison Housing Authority had been trying to get the MRA to okay public housing in the Brittingham Project just across West Washington Avenue the first residential urban renewal project in Wisconsin. 
But on December 1st, the MRA votes for market rate units, far more costly than most Greenbush residents can afford. Local leader Chester Zmudzinski, the head of Madison Neighborhood Centers, warns of dire consequences if the city doesn't build public housing for the displaced residents. Not our problem, says the Federal Urban Renewal Administration. As the month ends, the URA approves the project's final plans, six years after the city initiated the project. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and some black sharecroppers in Tennessee get a little help from the Madison Common Council as it overrides City Clerk A.W. Barris and allows members of the UW Student Council on Civil Rights to raise funds on city sidewalks. The money will go to the tenant farmers who have been denied credit to purchase food and clothing ever since they tried to register to vote in March. Barris had ruled that only registered charities can solicit on the street and that the student plan to send the money they raised to King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to support the Tennessee group did not qualify. The council disagreed and the students raised about $300. In other civil rights news, UW chemistry demonstrator Odell Taliaferro is re-elected president of the Madison chapter of the NAACP, beating Dane County social worker Marshall Colston. Colston is then named a member at large of the executive committee. Former chapter president attorney Lloyd Barbie is elected third vice president. On the 7th, UW Dean of Students Leroy Luberg, a former recruitment officer for the Central Intelligence Agency, warns students who join leftist political groups such as the Socialist Club or the Fair Play for Cuba Committee that they may be jeopardizing their professional futures. There are many campuses, he says in a Daily Cardinal interview, that, quote, don't have the little of toleration which is generally accepted here. Luberg also says that he takes such organizational activities into account when writing letters of recommendations for government jobs that require security clearances. On the 9th, the regents approve a faculty proposal to tighten admission standards for out-of-state students, by requiring a top 40% ranking rather than the current top 50. According to a new UW study, out-of-state students come from families with more education and higher income than their in-state replacements. Almost 40% of out-of-state men and 60% of out-of-state women come from households with annual incomes $15,000 and above, four times the rate of in-state students. And while fully half the fathers of non-resident students have a college degree, only 27% of the fathers of resident men share that educational attainment. Not surprisingly, the fathers of resident women score a bit better, 35%. The State Industrial Commission rules that disgraced former Madison Police Chief Bruce Weatherly is entitled to more than $3,500 in workers' compensation and medical fees for injuries sustained in January 1959 when he smashed his city squad car after drinking for several hours at the Hoffman House with his secretary. The Police and Fire Commission fired Weatherly four months later. There could soon be high-rise lakefront living for high rollers just east of the Edgewater Hotel as a group of well-connected financiers, executives, and industrialists release plans for a 350-unit apartment project for the elderly. Senior Citizens of Wisconsin Incorporated wants to tear down the historic Vilas and Hanks mansions at Wisconsin Avenue and East Gilman Street and build three eight-story apartment buildings. Construction will start as soon as financing is arranged. Far from downtown, Madison continues to pursue its manifest destiny to the west as a square mile of rolling farmland on either side of Old Sauk Road between Gammon Road and the Beltline is sold for a massive development featuring homes, schools, churches, a shopping center, and a privately owned pool. The Patrick J. Lucy Realty Company, which brokered the sale of three family farms to the West Air Corporation, will handle the residential components. And big business news to bookend the month. As the month opens, the state's Supreme Court closes the last legal challenges to the complex corporate structure of the Hilldale Shopping Center, a unique public-private partnership which UW Regent and former Governor Oscar Rennebaum devised to maximize university revenue from the farmland it owns just west of Midvale Boulevard. 
The high court ruled 6-1 to one that the university was not illegally engaging in private business when it gave $200,000 to a dummy nonprofit corporation called Key Lab Incorporated, which used the money to buy from the region's 33 acres in the neighborhood named after the university's Hill Farms. Key Lab will then lease the land to Hilldale Incorporated, which is wholly owned by the University of Wisconsin Foundation. The Hilldale Corporation will then construct buildings to rent to retail businesses, including Woolworths, Yost Kessenich's, and the drugstore company founded by former pharmacist Oscar Rennebaum. The UW Foundation will also get all the lease payments which Hilldale makes and all the stock dividends which it generates. A shopping senator competitor claimed in vain the arrangement constituted an unconstitutional public debt and set the price for the land too low. The residential aspect of the region's 600-acre hill farms development, largely designed by city planners and begun in 1957, is already wildly successful. All but 10 of the 800 lots have been sold, and 510 homes have been constructed. At month's end, a more immediate challenge to downtown retail. W.T. Grant, 21 South Pinckney Street, announces it will close on January 14th, after 30 years on the Capitol Square, and relocate to an as-yet-unnamed shopping center. Finally, monkey see, monkey do, all the monkeys are now back at the zoo, four months after they escaped from Monkey Island at the Henry Vilas Park facility. Most of the 36 rhesus monkeys were recaptured quickly, but several stayed footloose and fancy-free. It's not till December that the last two are finally trapped and brought back. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, simian-celebrating, listener-supported WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that's it for us. Thanks for listening. Our headline writer was David Aaron. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Jose Carlos Texiera and Stu Levitan. Katie Gergella is our engineer. Faye Parks produced the newscast, and Shelley Pittman is the news director at the station. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. A special programming note to end tonight's show. We will have a series of year-in-review specials coming your way as we bear down on the holidays. We'll return with the live local news in the new year on Tuesday, January 2nd. We hope you have the best of holidays and end of the year. Thanks for spending your 2023 with us. Up next is a live edition of Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.